welcome to another episode of Twice Told Tales uh, podcast. Today we're going to talk to Vanessa Bailey, who doesn't need this. Everyone probably knows her, and I'm going to let her uh, tell us more about herself and her work. Um, well, basically, I'm an independent uh, investigative journalist, a freelancer. I've been living in Syria for the last three years and working in Syria for seven years. Before that, um, I spent around a year between Egypt, Cairo, Alexandria and Gaza. I entered Gaza the first time in 2012 through the tunnels. <laughs> and after wow. two days, uh, Israel started its 2012 uh, bombing, aggression, mowing the lawn, whatever it wants to call it. The massacre, the continued genocide of Palestinians uh, inside Gaza. Um, and then I went back in 2013 to Gaza with the intention, or the intention of actually getting residency there and setting up a program to help kids with ADHD. But health issues kind of got in the way, so I had to come back to France for treatment. And then um, that's when I, I'd already met Eva Bartlett, who's like my best friend and uh, my closest colleague. We actually met at the Rafa crossing <laughs> into Gaza in 2012, and we've been friends ever since. Um, and with her, I got involved in the Syria Solidarity Movement, and then that kind of expanded out into my work on the ground in Syria. Um, in Russia, in Donbass, I've obviously been to Tehran once in 2016 uh, and hoping to come again very soon. Um, and that's it, really. I just try to push back against um, my government <clears throat> in particular, but the kind of what I call the alliance of evil or the axis of evil, which is the US, UK, EU, Gulf states, Israel, Turkey, all the countries that have basically clubbed together uh, to destroy the region, um, to break apart the alliances that exist, for example, between Syria and Iran and Syria and Russia and so on. Um, you know, that's how, I guess that's what I see as being my job. Um, it, it, I, I don't believe people in the West <clears throat> should interfere. I know we've had this conversation uh, between between ourselves in an interview. Um, you know, I, I don't think the West has any right to interfere in the sovereign affairs of any nation state. Um, <clears throat> and so my job is to prevent that happening because when that happens, we have war. You know, if everyone respected um, the sovereignty, the territorial integrity, the self-determination of the people of nation states, we we really wouldn't be in the mess we're in now. So I guess that's my priority. I call it anti-imperialism, call it whatever you want. It's, I tend not to call it anti-war because I think the entire kind of anti-war movement now has become this sort of liberal mess. <laughs> uh, pacifism for me is a Western privilege because Western countries 
have no memory of what it's like to to be under attack, to be under sanctions, to be blockaded, to be sieged, uh, to be targeted for destabilization projects and clandestine military operations and regime change operations. They have no idea. And, you know, no one here in Syria wants war. Everyone here is against war. But they believe in the right to defend themselves and defend their families, to defend their homeland and to defend their heritage, their history, their culture and their civilization. And so that's what I support. But I'm here in the U.S. and I feel exactly the same way. I'm like, what I can do is push back against the government. And I think what you were saying about people being under siege, like it can extend to the actual citizens of the West. Their minds are under siege. I mean, Absolutely. the ignorance in the West is what drives these fundraising for war, these these imperialist projects. So I think what you do in terms of providing uh, actual uh, journalistic content and, and uh, reality-based reporting to people who are in these kind of, uh, I don't know, imperialist trances uh, is is really valuable. So I commend you for that. That's It's, it's been, you know, it's been yeah, really nice I mean, following your work. People have been uh, really gaslighted for years, you know, they've forgotten how to actually use their own rationale and their own ability, their own agency to figure things out. Literally... Doing your own research? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, basically, you know, breaking out of that mainstream media paradigm um, and actually trying to understand what is going on in these different countries and also you know I I always say it's kind of like Groundhog Day they forget what happened in Libya in Iraq you know yeah but that was Libya and Iraq in Syria it's different now it's recognized that in Syria it was a regime change war etc you know the consensus has changed so now I see it on China or I see it on Iran or I see it on uh, Ukraine and Russia it's the same old, same old. No one kind of steps out of the hamster wheel and goes, well, hang on a minute. Didn't we hear all this same stuff in Libya, in Iraq, in Syria, from weapons of mass destruction to chemical weapons in Syria to the same old script, actually, There's in Ukraine? no creativity. No, exactly. it's not. But I carry <laughs> and repeated women's over rights and over. in Iran, you know, the same as Afghanistan. Uh, what happened to women's rights in Afghanistan now? Yeah, one of our previous guests, Hannah, said, I had, I keep bringing it up because I think it's one of the best, like, best critiques of the era we're in is that it's just so boring. Like, because it's just yeah. like, there is no creativity. <laughs> we're just like running the same script over and over again. Uh, and people just, there's, they're just in tra- an ignorant trance. And I, I don't, I don't totally like, discount their agency and feel feel that they're innocent in this i think there's the internet no, exactly. is available there's a lot of information so i, I yeah I, I have trouble just kind of passively saying you know this is these are ignorant yeah, people. I, I, I had that discussion someone i i can't remember what i tweeted um but someone came on and said, I, I think I said something like, you know, the US, UK are the axis of evil, blah, 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 about the Israeli, recent Israeli bombing of Damascus civilian airport. And someone who was obviously American came on and said, no, I mean, our governments are, you, you can't say all of America or all of the UK. So my answer always is, okay, what did you do to, to try and stop the war against Syria? What did you do? 
to prevent the sanctions or to protest the sanctions? Where were all the marches in the last 11 years? Where were they? No, you were all cheering for Assad to go and for Al-Qaeda to, to be victorious in Syria because for at least eight years, you didn't figure out what was going on. So I'm sorry, you're yeah, I... passive aggressively part of the system and you voted in because he was talking about, um, no, 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 I voted for change. So I said, you're telling me you voted for Trump. Well, Trump thermal uh, ballooned all of the agricultural crops in the Northeast. He made it clear he was there to steal Syrian oil. He bombed Syria after, you know, the, the, the fake chemical attack in Khan Shehun in 2017. He assassinated Soleimani and Mohandas, you know, the two military leaders that were responsible for the defeat of ISIS in Syria and in Iraq, of course, with their allies on the ground. So, uh, you know, you voted for change. What is the change? And Trump introduced the most aggressive uh, economic sanctions against Syria under the Caesar law, which also punishes, which is completely unlawful, punishes any country, any sovereign nation that comes to the aid of Syria. I mean, that's unheard of. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm willing to give the working class a pass on those things because, you know, they're busy and they have, they're yeah, already stressed true. enough. But the weird thing is in the last couple years, the working class is actually one of the most knowledgeable of the scams than the academia and the intelligentsia, which is so annoying to me. And so if you're looking at, I mean, the yeah. cowardice in the journalistic and in academic class is really unbelievable. Like, well, they've been heavily infiltrated also. Um, academia in the UK is, is, I mean, you had the case of Professor David Miller, who was effectively dismissed, even though he won his case against his or the, the claims that he was um, spreading anti-Semitic propaganda, blah, blah, blah. Um, so, you know, but, but academia in the UK has been infiltrated for a very, very long time. Intelligence agencies have control of academia, of the media, of the political sphere, of UN agencies, NGO complex, the whole billionaire complex. And, and the proof it's, is it's they eagerly gobbled up an uh, experimental injection, which we still don't yeah. even know what's in it. And they're just it's like, not, yeah, give me more. And what? Like, aren't you critical thinkers? I don't, it's just unbelievable. And I think, you know, probably the reason the working class are the ones that are seeing um, through what's going on, particularly in Syria. And I would say um, <clears throat> the, the various or factions of Communist Party in the UK in particular were very good at seeing through the lies from very early on um, <clears throat> is because they are hugely under attack also, of course, <laughs> with the yeah. COVID project, with the WEF, with yeah. the eugenicist programs that are coming out now in, in Canada particularly, but have existed for centuries in the UK. I'm just looking into that at the moment. I mean, it's terrifying. You know, I mean, this they're straight been... up euthanizing poor people and mentally handicapped yeah. people. It's unbelievable. And kids, babies, yeah. babies up to one year old now, they're, they're recommending to be put onto the assisted suicide uh, program. Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. just, that's, yeah, they, that's this just is evil. the debauchery of the West also. You know, this is something... Um, that's why I said to you in the beginning, it's it's much easier to live in Syria, not only because 
in a, in a sense, you're on the front lines. But because people here in Iran, in Russia, in, in, in a, from different perspectives, but they've maintained their tradition, their traditions, um, their religious roots, their spirituality, their history, their culture, their civilization, they've not allowed it to tip over into the kind of, I call it the Dante's Inferno abyss, because that's literally where the West is right now. It's on all the seven levels. Yep. <laughs> of, you know, and, and that's also an indication of the end of empire, by the way. I mean, every empire that's dying goes through this kind of depravity and distortion and, and pure evil, actually. And we well, don't have statesmen anymore in the West. We, we have idiots. We, we yep. have people that, that are just put in place to carry through the decisions of the oligarchy. They're not statespeople. They're not decision makers. They're, they're not educated, even. They're liars. Trump is example. Yeah. yeah, you know, and, and they're but, all, there's no difference between them because they're actually not in charge of, of the roadmap. They're directing specific elements of that roadmap and they're being told how to direct it from above, exactly. but they're not in charge of it. And that, that's become more and more apparent in the last two or three years. So Tara's right, Trump is a good example, but the interesting thing about Trump is that he is actually more valuable in controlling liberal the liberals than he is in do, <laughs> executing a conservative plan. Like he has been the best mind game, and people like everyone just can't stop talking about him. Even he hasn't been in office forever, he's still like Trump, Trump, Trump. It's like <laughs> their entire brain has yeah. been taken over by this phenomenon, and now they are just supporting crazy wars in Ukraine, which is you know causing massive inflation, taking money out of the U.S. that could be used for better things. And then now we're under literal threat of nuclear bombardment because of a to save a country that most even liberals can't find on a map. So it's like, well, it, I mean, it's ugh. not only that Ukraine is a failed state. It's yeah. been, I mean, Zelensky has sold off the majority of its real estate and its land. It's been the money laundering center for the U.S. and the U.K. and the EU for for years i mean it's it's you know uh, I, I said it on twitter actually i said i can't believe i'm having to argue that nazis are bad i mean really that that's where we've arrived at that's the point we've arrived at i thought it was bad that i had to explain al-qaeda were not good right but yeah. now I'm actually having to argue, no, Nazis are bad. They're really bad. Stop inviting them into your universities. You know, stop giving them a platform. Stop normalizing them. And, well, and mainstream media was jaw-dropping about Nazis in Ukraine up until the beginning of 2019. Yeah. And, like, alternative media was talking about Israel funding the Azov Battalion in Ukraine as late as, I think, as early as, like, 2018. There were stories about that. So it's like, this is nothing, this isn't a conspiracy. And if it is, it's a really long game on the part of the, you know, alternative media to talk about this because how could they have predicted this war? I mean, I don't know. It's, uh, it's amazing what backpedaling and like, and confusion propaganda they'll come up with to make people think that they're uh, gaslighting, make people think what they see isn't true. But well, and also, mm -hmm. I mean, it's, 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 um, 
Recently, Israel itself welcomed an Azov battalion soldier to Israel. I mean, quite extraordinary, you know. Oh, yeah. This guy's a Nazi and he's being platformed, but it's not actually so surprising because when you look at the collaboration historically between Zionism and Nazism, if you take out the religious aspect, if you take out the Judaism, what is Zionism? It's an ultra-nationalist, racist, yep. elitist organization, right? And in the 1920s, Jabotinsky, who is actually the, the, the kind of the, the spiritual mentor of Benjamin Netanyahu, by the way, who is a revisionist Zionist and whose grandfather was a supporter of Jabotinsky. Jabotinsky formed a collaboration with Simon Petlura, the first president of Ukraine, who had carried out multiple programs against Jews and communists. But why? Because this was perceived to be um, a collaboration against the threat of Russian aggression. Right. So, so the Jews under Jabotinsky were allowed to form their own militia and were allowed to form their own um, uh, police forces and security forces and so on, on the basis that if they both faced the threat of a Russian aggression, they would collaborate. So this collaboration it, goes way back, way before even the Zionist movement really came into <clears throat> full swing. But there's a, there's a deep-seated anti-Russian like it's almost the core of neo the neocons and people don't recognize that they think neocons are just like anti-palestinian or whatever it's very that's a very base under basic understanding of what neocons are they're, they're yeah, an I mean, anti-russian force and so it's not only anti-russian it's it's it actually boils down to being anti-communist i mean you have to remember that when the nazis started their their programs they started first with the communists actually and then went to the to the Jews. And if you look at organizations like Victims of Communism that are now pretty much directing traffic against China, so they're directing the propaganda against China, they were established by, by Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> Lev wow. Dobriansky, who was the founder of VOC, Victims of Communism, which, as I said, is, is one of the kind of State Department-funded and backed organizations that's running for example, the Uyghur um, propaganda against China, Lev Dobriansky, who actually established it with Zbigniew Brzezinski, <laughs> um, was a Nazi that, who was imported from Ukraine. And even in Canada, the majority of Nazis that came into Canada, or even Ukrainians that came into Canada, were Nazis, were ultra-nationalists. So freelance. Freeland, her grandfather was basically publishing Goebbels' propaganda in Ukraine. She worked for a Banderite media outlet, too, actually, in Ukraine. So she has Nazi origins. <laughs> and that's the yeah. thing. All of these Nazi elements were embedded. I mean, you know that. The U.S. brought in... Um, Nazi war criminals to to establish the the MK Ultra thought control program etc at Fort Derrick and so on and and I can't remember his name but there was a Japanese war criminal that was also brought in to develop the chemical weapons bioweapons yeah. capability for the CIA um, Yeah Operation Steve Paperclip Hintz has written a really good book on this actually Isn't that Paperclip Yeah uh, Operation Paperclip but uh, Stephen Kinzer's book is called The Chief 
poisoner, and it's about Sidney Gottlieb, who was this Nazi, oh, okay. who was brought in to develop basically the the whole kind of MK Ultra mind control program and so on. So Western society has been completely infiltrated deliberately by Nazis since the end of of World War Two. So the the fact that they are now um, extolling the virtues of Nazism shouldn't be any surprise. It's just w what I find scary is that I'm having to persuade people it's a bad thing. Well, what's scary is these are people that just a year ago or whatever were screaming about anti-racism, and it's like they, it's like this is this is the thing that's frustrating. I, of course, Nazis have existed or whatever, but you have a whole class of people in the Western world that just has no brain. They just go with whatever mainstream media says and they'll go from one thing to the complete opposite thing the next day. And it's just so frustrating. They go from like, oh, you're my body, my choice, women's rights, and the next day, you gotta inject this ex experimental <sighs> thing that nobody knows what it is. And then they'll go from like, oh, Black Lives Matter, ra anti-racism to being like, yay, Nazis. It's like, wh what? Like, <laughs> what are oh, we dealing then, with? You know, they'll all put the Ukrainian flag as their avatar and suddenly Russians are orcs and Russians can be completely wiped out because they're dehumanized. Well, there's and, a guy just that's five houses down. With Iranians, that's what they did with Syrians. That's what they did with Libyans. That's what they did with Iraqis, Yemenis, Venezuelans. And there's, <laughs> with Iran. there's a guy yeah. five houses yeah. down from here who has out in front of his house like a big flag. The first half is the U.S. flag, and then it fades into the Ukrainian flag. And nobody takes offense to that? I mean, how is that not offensive? If, if I was a U.S. serviceman, I would go to that, knock on that guy's door and say, you have to take this down. Because that's like equating the U.S. with Ukraine. I mean, as much as the U.S. is a horrible, it does horrible things around the world or whatever, if you're a patriot and you're going to hang a U.S. flag, at least be consistent with that. You can't, I mean, uh, it's just... Uh. Sorry. I'd be so inclined to well, hang a swastika over it. But exactly! I it. I'm inclined to just hang a swastika outside and see if I could get some, some action, and then I'll just point to that guy and say, ah, what? I thought yeah. it was normal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so because we're, we don't have that much time, I want yeah, to sorry. talk about uh, the assassination of General Soleimani yeah. and Abdullah. Like, I know, that, I mean, there is so much that we want to talk about with you and it's very um, informative for me and I learned a lot, but um, yeah, let's talk about the assassination of, um, uh, well, or let's talk about the role of uh, General Soleimani and uh, Abu Mahdi and Mohandas and the role they played in the region in terms of uh, fighting ISIS and saving uh, the region from um, you know, um, foreign intervention and just uh, uh, supporting the resistance groups both in Iraq and in Syria and Lebanon in, um, in Palestine. Yeah, I mean, um, I met Abu Mahdi Mohandas in 2017 with a press delegation. We'd, we'd gone for a conference uh, in Baghdad. And it just happened that he said, okay, I've got a couple of hours, bring them in. It was in the middle of all the battles for against uh, ISIS at the time. And, you know, we were incredibly privileged to, to meet him. And, um, 
you know, it's such an incredible guy. I mean, so warm, so intelligent. He was, I think, an engineer by trade, not not a soldier. Um, and in fact, his engineering background is is what made him this great architect of resistance, you know. Um, and this incredible um, breadth of humanity. You know, these people are always described, whether it's Soleimani, whether it's um, Mohandas, you know, of course, they're dismissed as terrorists by the West. They're designated terrorists because they are effectively the nemesis of the axis of evil, the, the, the actual terrorist producers. So, of course, they're going to project, just as Israel does against the Palestinians, they're going to project onto them their own terrorist um, ideology. But when you meet these people, when you're privileged enough to meet these people, and you realize that, of course, they're not ordinary people, they're extraordinary people. But they're ordinary people that have taken on an extraordinary role, and they've maintained their ordinary connection to humanity. I think that's the best way that I can describe it. Um, they can relate to everyone that they speak to with humor, with compassion, with understanding. Um, I mean, it's kind of a funny story. There was one AP journalist that managed to, I have no idea how, she managed to sneak her way onto the delegation. And she had clearly been tasked with writing a hit piece on Mohannes and on Hashid al-Shabi. So she kept asking the same question in different ways to try and get him to give her a quote that she could basically fit into the byline, you know? That's how they work. They, they don't go there with an open mind. They go there with uh, a story already that they need to write and they just wait to try and trick you into giving the quotes. But he knew exactly what was going on. He was laughing at her. You know, he was teasing her. He was just like, no, I'm not going to say what you want me to say. <laughs> and in the end, she wrote the story and she just made stuff up. And wow. it, But the, the problem was there were, I don't know how many of us, around 15 of us, including me, Pepe Escobar, Shamin Nawani. <laughs> so we all just jumped on her when she produced this article and just said, you're lying. Like, he didn't say that. I had the whole transcript of, of the conversation. Um, and, you know, when you look at what Hashad al-Shabi achieved in the war against ISIS, and as Mohandas said, um, the Americans didn't offer a single bullet to any of the resistance against ISIS. So, of the course, that, that the ISIS. Yeah, of course. They sold it to ISIS, you know, and they recruited and trained ISIS in Iraq and Syria. Um, and the other thing that I think for me is the most important point about both military commanders um, is the lack of sectarianism. You know, even within Hashad al-Shabi, there were Yazidis, there were Sunni, there were Christians, there were every single minority sect in, in Iraq was included. In Syria, for example, Qasem Soleimani was hugely responsible for um, enabling 
the national defense forces of some of the Christian towns that were the most under threat in northern Hama, for example, Mahadeh, Kelbie, both Orthodox Christians, so strong connections to Russia. And Russia later came in and also enabled um, the national defense forces there because the army at one point was on something ridiculous, like more than 100 fronts. Right. So there were some fronts that were left to a large degree undefended. So Soleimani, I know, was working with the Christian communities in these towns to develop the national defense and enable them to defend themselves. Right. And, and you know, and again, Hezbollah, which, of course, is, has connections to, to Soleimani, to Iran, to etc., um, they also, in 2016, I visited the Christian um, town of Al-Qa' on the border uh, between uh, Lebanon and Syria. Shortly after it was attacked um, by, I can't remember, I think it was eight suicide bombers in one day. Um, and uh, basically, Hezbollah were the core of protection in in that town, in a Christian town. And the same in Malula, for example, in Syria. Hezbollah were instrumental uh, in the liberation of Malula from Nusra Front and Free Syrian Army. So, you know, when the West is talking about these leaders as being sectarian, as being... Um, Iranian-backed supremacists or, you know, expanding Iranian power, the reality is they were restoring stability to sovereign nations. And that's why, of course, for the West, they, they were an anathema because they don't want stability in these nations. They want instability so that they can plunder resources, they can regime change, they can control um, all aspects of political processes in those countries. It was kind of shocking how, like, after the red line thing that Obama did and the whole, like, basically America was just like, no more, we're not doing another Iraq. Everyone voted against that. Then all of a sudden ISIS pops up and it's just like this thing, oh, well, look, we have to fight terrorism and then we go fight ISIS instead of Damascus and somehow that's They don't fight ISIS. I I know, they don't fight. I admitted, yeah, exactly, you know. I mean, this is the thing, Soleimani... Of course, alongside the Syrian Arab army and Hezbollah and in 2015, Russia came into the fight. And then you started to really see the, the diminishment of ISIS. But under the under U.S. battling ISIS, it was flourishing. As yeah. it is now, what, look in the northeast of Syria now, there's more than 53,000 ISIS members. Right, whether it's their families or fighters, there's 53,000 in holding camps in the north. How many ISIS attacks on U.S. like uh, occupied oil infrastructure have you heard? Zero. How easy would it be to do? Pretty easy. None. (laughs) None at all. And the U.S. ferries them backwards and forwards from from the holding camps into Iraq for extra training or, uh, you know, providing them weapons and equipment, or they ferry them to areas in the Syrian desert to the east of Homs to carry out operations against Syrian Arab army and Russian positions and so on. Um, and no, I mean, and, the, you know, go on. Yeah. And the injured um, ISIS fighters were treated in Israeli hospitals. Like, that tells also 
Yeah, well, and also, the, um, I think it was two years ago that the Minister of Defence, the Israeli Minister of Defence, actually admitted that they'd been providing weapons to the terrorist groups inside Syria. And the thing is that I don't make any big differentiation between Al-Qaeda and ISIS other than perhaps the funding they receive. I see them all as a kind of a bunch of mafia groups that fight amongst themselves for territory, for power, for status, for money, for corruption, for organ trafficking, for all of these, you know, heinous crimes that they commit. But ultimately, they're all proxies of the US cartel. And that includes Israel, of course, if it was a choice between President Assad and Iran and Hezbollah and and Russia, then Israel would choose ISIS. Well, if you just replace the mis uh, the misused Islam in ISIS and replace it with a misused Judaism, you just get Israel. Yeah, like, exactly. That's the same yeah, Zionism pretty much. That. Yeah. And you know, if you look at if you look at who actually created um, what I describe as these supremacist, ultranationalist, racist, elitist. Uh, branches of various religions. It's Britain. You know, Britain was responsible for the creation of Ikhwan in Egypt, the Muslim Brotherhood. It was largely responsible for the creation and the settlement of Zionism in Palestine. Um, it and was Wah hugely, yeah, and Wahhabism in Saudi Arabia. And, and now Nazism, you know, all these four um, branches are very similar in ideology and that's why nobody should be very shocked <laughs> that Zelensky is or, or even Kolomoisky who established Zelensky and also established the Azov battalion has an Israeli passport. Wow, I didn't yes. know that. Well, no one that. should be surprised <laughs> oh by that. Yeah, he has uh, he has dual nationality. Okay, well. So uh, what do you think has happened to the resistance forces? and the resistance movement after the assassination of these two generals? Oh, um, I always remember actually after the assassination and going into Mezze, the, the central autostrad in Damascus and seeing the whole strad lined with images of Soleimani, that it still brings tears to my eyes now, you know, and they're still there. Um, and the number of people that were going to, to give their condolences, and again, from all uh, sectors of Syrian society, whether it was Christian, whether it was um, Druze, it didn't matter. You know, the respect for, for this one man and his role um, in really masterminding a lot of the resistance, equally in Yemen, of course. Um, I think it hardened the resolve. I think once the shock and the the loss had sunk in, then it hardened the resolve of the resistance. And actually, I think almost what we've seen since is Soleimani and Mohandas' legacy, which is the unity of the resistance. I mean, we know that in Syria, Syria was betrayed by Hamas. It was betrayed by the Muslim Brotherhood, right? But for Soleimani, and I know for Iran, it, the most important thing is 
that the resistance be unified. So what did we see recently? We saw Hamas come to Damascus to speak with uh, President Assad. And I have to say this was a very bitter pill for a lot of Syrians to swallow because Hamas was really responsible for a lot of the devastation um, in Syria. But there is a bigger issue. There's a bigger cause. And I think that's the seed that Soleimani planted. Can you elaborate on, you the, on the, the, the Hamas, how Hamas was, uh, <laughs> was, was responsible for that? Because I think a lot of people won't understand the details. Uh, Hamas is effectively Muslim Brotherhood. Um, and Hamas, I'll give you an example. I was in Gaza in 2013, and I don't know if you remember, in April 2013, there was a massive explosion in Damascus, and Israel had targeted, it claimed, a Hezbollah um, ammunition dump, but it was literally like a nuclear explosion. It was a huge uh, mushroom cloud explosion. And as I was in Gaza, I thought, okay, I'll interview someone from Hamas, a relatively high up spokesperson. And I remember saying to him, well, you know, what is Hamas's response to, to the Israeli attack? And when he said to me, well, it's normal, they crossed Israel's red line by supplying weapons to Hezbollah, my jaw, like, just hit the table. I was just like, what? But at this point, you've got to realize that Hamas was taking money from Qatar and Saudi Arabia, right? It had basically pivoted away from the real uh, resistance axis, Hezbollah, Iran, Syria, towards Saudi Arabia and Qatar. And Qatar, of course, is one of the primary funders and supporters of the Muslim Brotherhood. And Qatar put, I don't know how many billions into the war against the Syrian presidency, right? And supported Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda was, was funded right. by Qatar. And so Hamas's role in Syria was to support Al-Qaeda. So actually, even prior to 2011, Hamas had been digging the tunnels that were then used by Al-Qaeda to run the war from the suburbs of Damascus, of Aleppo, of Homs, and so wow. on, against the Syrian Arab army. They brought the and tunnel diggers. And they were diggers. training, yeah, they oh, were training wow. Nusra Front in the Kalamun Mountains. Wow, I didn't know that, actually. That's and they took that, that, that technology, by the way, from Hezbollah. Wow. <laughs> Hezbollah that... taught them how to make tunnels, because that was how they resisted and how they survived in Gaza all these years. And do you think that was done like through Western intelligence using Qatar as a as a way of sort of like sure yeah sure like but, that... but also the Muslim Brotherhood has has always been the favored tool of imperialism because it was created by the imperialists in the imperialists and it's perceived as you know the political arm of Islam Sunni Islam. But in reality, as a friend of mine in London says, they're terrorists in suits. That's interesting. Well, anyone who's followed the Palestine and, and appreciated Al Jazeera's coverage of that situation and also is anti-imperialist and anti-war knows distinctly the time period where this occurred because the coverage mm -hmm. of Syria was just jaw-dropping and uh, absurd. And most people, I think, hideous. stopped watching it at that point. But, yeah, and you, you know, just... 
for example, I don't know if you remember all of the um, <clears throat> outrage about Yamuk camp, which was effectively, yeah. it. you know, everyone uses this word camp. It was a suburb. It was a suburb of Damascus. So it was buildings where Palestinian uh, refugees from the Nakba in 1948 shared the suburb with Syrians and of, of again, all different uh, communities and sects and minorities. It was actually Hamas who worked with Nusra Front and the Free Syrian Army to allow them into Yarmouk camp and to take control. Wow. <laughs> and this really is bad. all documented, by the way. I mean, Shamin Nawani actually went to all the refugee camps and spoke to the um, people there. And they told her, well, actually, you know, it was Hamas that opened the door to them. Right? Well, that explains Muslim, a lot the of Muslim the Brotherhood, really. fractioning of the Palestinian sort of uh, expatriate community and as a whole over Syria. Like, it's Absolutely. Of, uh, yeah. but, but also the flip side is Liwa Al-Quds, which is one of the most well-known um, brigades of the Syrian Arab army, is, is all Palestinian. And when East Aleppo was liberated, it was predominantly Liwa al-Quds that liberated this area, hugely helped by Iran, by the way, and by Russia at that point. But it was Liwa al-Quds, the Palestinian wow. brigade. So there, there was the split again, you know, everyone. The thing is, what it was weaponized, it was weaponized against Syria um, to turn the Palestinian movement against Syria. And actually what we tried to do as the Syria Solidarity Movement was we, we raised a petition from all the Palestinian faith leaders, whether they were Christian, whether it didn't matter. And we got hundreds, if not, I think more than a thousand signatures in solidarity with Syria. But the Muslim Brotherhood was such a, a, a an important um um, element within the Palestine movement. That was the problem. And so it controlled the narrative against Syria and it it deceived actually a lot of anti-imperialists like Grayzone. Grayzone for five years supported uh, the rebels against Assad. So and they then made a, suddenly realized ab that... Oops. Abrupt U-turn. <laughs> yeah, yeah but, you know. I think... um, but but because they were so, let's say, uh, they, they were such an important part of the Palestine movement, of course, exactly. they were deeply affected by the Muslim Brotherhood narrative and the Muslim Brotherhood power in, in the United States. Most of the Muslim movements and, and charities and NGOs and so on are Muslim Brotherhood in the, in the States. Things like Syrian American um, Medical Society, Muslim Brotherhood. Only, you know, they were the only people that Democracy Now! would interview, for example, were Muslim yeah. brother. <laughs> well, that really, yeah, cleared, I'm Chris... glad you talked about that. That cleared up a lot of, uh, <laughs> like, like, because I've always that. been confused about what happened there. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that's where, it, you know, Soleimani's and, and even Mohandas, their legacy was this unity of the resistance because without unity, you know, what the West always tries to do is to fracture along sectarian lines the resistance. 
um, and to some degree they've been successful. So for, for Soleimani and Mohandas and for people that really understood the resistance, they realized that, okay, you know, we have to at some point be united in the war against Israel, the war against uh, the West. And so that, I think, for me, I don't know whether Marwa agreed when she was on, that for me is, is the legacy. After Hamas came to Damascus, suddenly we started to see Syrian flags flying in Janin and Nablus. We hadn't seen that before. Wow. You know, when there That's was nice. the, the extended uh, Zionist attack against Janin and, and um, these various areas, we started to see Syrian flags flying alongside the Palestinian flags. So that, that for me was some kind of message, you know. Yeah, so you think, um, I mean, uh, we all will hope that this uh, unity that has started will remain in place. But I, it's also, I think that maybe over time, uh, I mean, a lot of people start to understand or like what actually was happening in Syria, because as you said, the narrative on the other side uh, and always calling uh, like the Assad regime as whatever they call, uh, it was very strong. And even yeah. I saw even people inside, for example, Iran that will fall for that narrative. Uh, but it it looks like a lot of I in like I know a lot of people who start to understand what actually was happening in Syria, and it's great that you explained because it was difficult to understand what actually was happening <laughs> and why so many people yeah. were falling for that narrative. Mm. Yeah, and Turkey, of course, Turkey had had big influence over the Muslim Brotherhood and still does. So all of these elements you had Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, all of them really. Um, funding and influencing the Muslim Brotherhood. And of course, historically, from 1946 onwards, I wrote about the 75-year war against Syria. And the Muslim Brotherhood was consistently weaponized against whichever regime or government they wanted to remove, particularly, of course, Hafez al-Assad in the late 70s. That, again, was a repeat of what happened in 2011. You know, it was described as um, a brutal crackdown against um, the rebels, even back then. But the reality and the context was the savagery of the Muslim Brotherhood against Syrian people, the carrying out of suicide bombing, the assassination of the cadets in the Aleppo military college before 1982, when Hafez al-Assad finally kind of corralled them all in Hamar, and there was, to some degree, a, a savage crackdown, but only after they carried out years of isolated assassinations and suicide bombings and attacks on the Syrian Arab army, attacks on the, the various um, infidel, you know, sects that as, they, as they see them inside Syria. Again, this very sectarian ideology <laughs> is very, very prevalent in the Muslim Brotherhood. And that is what was being fueled, funded, armed and equipped um, by various states, including Turkey, Qatar and Saudi Arabia. But yes, of course, behind it all <laughs> is the deep state in the US and the UK. The UK, for me, 
um, is is the brain of all of these operations. The, the, the US is the muscle, it's the brawn, but the UK is the intelligence. Well, that, that is very interesting. I know you have to go, so I guess we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up there, but hopefully this can be a part one to a part two. I'd love to talk to you about life in Syria and how the Syrian people view the current, you know, occupation by the U.S. Um, and your dogs. Uh, I've heard you have. <laughs> <laughs> the next time it can be a dog-friendly podcast if they're inside. They're all fast no asleep at the moment. I oh, that's right. It's them out. <laughs> all right. Well, well, we're looking forward to chatting with you again because there's so many interesting things that you can uh, you can teach us, and I really appreciate you you uh, laying out that the intricacies of the situation so um thank you so tara is there anything Thanks else you want to say no i'm going to uh wrap up the, uh this episode uh, so thanks for watching another episode of try stole tales podcast don't forget to subscribe to our channel so that you get notified of the new posts